and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told through the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. To hear news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories, I'm your host, Fred, and that great theme music is from Roger Gregg of Crazy Dog Audio Theater. We are continuing our run of unconventional holiday programming this week with our friends at the Quicksilver Radio Theater. Uh, Today's work is a tale of that inimitable detective Sherlock Holmes and his investigation of a mystery initiated by a Christmas goose. Um, A bit lighter than some of the Holmes fare that you um, probably have heard out there, but it is thoroughly delightful, rendered with the quality and freshness you've come to expect from Quicksilver to the guys who really take old tales and make them anew. Uh, Tales called The Blue Carbuncle. Uh, We're going to split it up into two parts. So for today, enjoy part one of The Blue Carbuncle. From New York, Quicksilver Radio Theater, winner of the Golden Reel Award, presents one of the best-loved adventures of the great detective and the good doctor, who never lived and so can never die. Please, turn down your lights and return with us to that gas-lit London where Victoria ever reigns as we present The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle by Arthur Conan Doyle. In glancing over my notes, I see that in the winter of 1887, I was attending to my medical practice and no longer living at Baker Street. So on the second morning after Christmas, I returned to my old lodgings, merely to wish my friend, Sherlock Holmes, the compliments of the season. Quite far from my mind was any thought that I might be about to share with him what was perhaps the oddest case of his career. Watson, happy Christmas. And to you, Mrs. Hudson, so good to see you. And how is Mrs. Watson? Quite well, thank you. Uh, Is Holmes in? Uh, He's been in all morning, filling the house with the smell of that horrible tobacco, and all the while staring at her hat. I found Holmes reclining upon the sofa in his purple dressing gown, a pipe rack within reach upon the right, and a pile of crumpled morning papers near at hand. Before the couch was a wooden chair, and off the back hung a very seedy, hard-felt hat, much worse for wear. You were engaged, Holmes. Perhaps I interrupt you. Oh, my dear Watson, Uh, not at all. I'm glad to have a friend with whom I can discuss my conclusions. The matter's a perfectly trivial one, Hmm? as is the hat. But there are points in connection with it not entirely devoid of interest. Ah. And you know that my life is one long battle against boredom. As well as you know your physician's opinion of the employment of poisonous stimulants in that fight. What a mess. Rest assured, Doctor. (laughs) I'll just bring you something hot to drink, Doctor. Thank you, Mrs. Hudson. Make yourself at home, Watson, in your old armchair before the fire. (laughs) The windows are thick with ice this morning. Well, I suppose that, homely as it looks, this hat has some deadly story linked to it. It's the clue which will guide you to the solution of some mystery or the punishment of some crime. No, no no crime. Only one of those whimsical little incidents which will happen when you have four million human beings all jostling each other within the space of a few square miles. Amid the actions of so dense a swarm, every possible combination of events takes place. Many a little problem is presented which may be striking and bizarre without being criminal. We have had experience of such. So much so that in the recent cases I have added to my notes, several have been entirely free of any legal crime. Precisely. Mm. You allude to my attempts to recover the papers from that woman. Uh, Irena Adler. The same. 
and your purply titled Adventure of the Man with the Twisted Lip. Well, I have no doubt this small matter will fall into the same innocent category. Well, Holmes, we should be thankful when a case is not as grisly as, say, that of Enid Stoner and the Speckled Band. True enough. Well, back to the matter at hand. You know Peterson, hmm. the porter? Oh, the veteran, yes. It is to him that this trophy belongs. It is his hat? No, he hat. found it. Oh. Now, I beg you, look upon it not as a battered derby, but as an intellectual problem. Oh. First, how it came to be here. It arrived upon Christmas morning hmm. in company with a good fat goose, oh. which is no doubt roasting at this moment in front of <laughs> Peterson's fire. Now, as he recounted it, the facts are these. Well, Mr. Holmes, about four o'clock this morning, I was returning home from some small jollification. As I made my way down Tottenham Court Road, I seen in front of me in the gaslight a tallish man staggering along with a white goose slung on his shoulder. Just as he come to the corner of Gould Street... Here, Alfie! Just see if it ain't Father Christmas. <laughs> he was set upon by a couple of toughs. Chester, he brought us our Christmas goose. <laughs> One of them knocked off the man's bonnet. He swung his stick over his head to defend himself and smashed the shop window behind him. Hey, what's all this? I run forward to protect him. But what with the shock of having broke the window and seeing me in my official-like uniform... He dropped his bird and took to his heels as best he could into that tangle of streets behind Tottenham Court. Wait, come back! The roughs run when they seen me too. And there I was, in possession of the field of battle, as it were, and of the spoils. So here you are, Mr. Holmes. An ugly hat, a beautiful Christmas goose, and just the kind of problem what I know you like. And... There things stand. I don't understand. I recall Peterson as a very good fellow. Why not simply restore the hat and goose to their owner? My dear fellow, that is the problem. Look, the initials HB are just legible on the lining of this hat. Yeah. And, for Mrs. Henry Baker, was printed on this small card tied to the bird's left leg. But, if you but know... there are some thousands of bakers and hundreds of Henry Bakers in this city. It is no simple thing to restore lost property to any one of them. Well, what has been done? Well, the goose we retained until this morning, when there were signs that in spite of the day's frost, it should be eaten without delay. Mrs. Hudson took it to Peterson's to fulfill the ultimate destiny of a goose, <laughs> while I continued to retain the hat of the poor unknown gentleman who lost his Christmas dinner. Did Peterson not advertise in the papers? No. Uh, then what clue could you have to this fellow's identity? Only as much as we can deduce from his hat. Oh, you joke. What can you gather from an old battered felt? There on the chair are my lens and a forceps. You know my methods. Oh. What can you gather as to the individuality of the man who has worn this chapeau? Oh. Well, a uh, very ordinary black hat, uh, usual round shape, hard and cracked in several places. Mm. Uh, lining was of red silk, but it's a good deal discolored and no maker's name. Mm -hmm. uh, initials inside, uh, pierced in the brim for a hat securer. Oh, ah, the elastic is missing. Ah. <laughs> oh, ex exceedingly dusty. <laughs> uh, uh, spotted in several places. Uh, oh, though there seems to have been some attempt to hide the discolored patches by 
smearing them with ink. Mm. You may have it back. Oh, thank you. Ah, what... If, uh, no, um... Uh, uh, Holmes, I don't know. I can see nothing useful to us. On the contrary, Watson, you saw everything. You fail, however, to reason from what you see. Uh, then, pray, tell me what is it you can infer from this hat? Well, that the man was highly intellectual is, of course, evident. What? Also that he was fairly well-to-do within the last three years, although he has now fallen upon evil days. But... He has foresight but less now than formerly, pointing to moral retrogression, <laughs> which, taken with the decline of his fortunes, seems to indicate some evil influence, probably drink, what? which but, might uh, also account for the obvious fact that his wife has ceased to love him. My dear Holmes. He has, I however, can't... retained some degree of self-respect. He leads a sedentary life, is out of training entirely, middle-aged, with grizzled hair, which he had cut within the last few days, and which he anoints with lime cream. Oh. Uh, also, by the way... It is extremely improbable that he has gas lines in his house. Oh, Holmes, how on earth can you possibly know all that? Well, you know that... Here we are, Doctor. The last bit of my hot oh. room punch. Thank you, oh. Mrs. Hudson. Yes, thank you. Still playing with that filthy hat. Now, Watson, hmm? confess yourself utterly taken aback by my portrait of our man. I am. I ought to make you sign a paper to that effect. <laughs> Why? Because in five minutes, you will say that it is all so absurdly simple. I am sure I shall say nothing of the kind. I confess I am unable to follow you. For example, how do you deduce that this man is intellectual? Well, watch as I try it on. <laughs> it, it drops nearly over your eyes, Holmes. You see? It is a matter of cubic capacity. Hmm. A man with so large a head must have something in it. Give the decline of his fortunes, then. This hat is three years old. These flat brims curled at the edge came in, then. And it is of the very best quality. Hmm. If our man could afford so expensive a hat then, but none since, then he has assuredly gone down in the world. Well, what of the, the foresight and the moral retrogression? This little disc and loop, which you noticed, Indeed. is the foresight. These hat securers are never sold with hats. This man ordered one as a precaution against the wind. Hmm. But since he has broken the elastic and not replaced it, clearly he has less foresight now than before. Distinct proof of a weakening nature. On the other hand, the endeavour to conceal these stains by daubing them with ink, as you also observed, yeah. is a sign that he has not entirely lost his self-respect. Well, I suppose that is plausible. P plausible, yes. That he is middle-aged with grizzled hair recently cut, on which he uses lime cream, is gathered from a close examination of the lining. Hmm. The lens discloses a number of hair ends, clean cut by barber's scissors, with a distinct odour of lime. Here. Hmm. The dust, you observe, yeah. is the fluffy brown of the house, showing that the man is indoors most of the time, while the marks of moisture there on yeah. the inside are proof that the wearer perspires freely. Therefore, he is hardly in the best of training. Uh, but his wife, you said that she had ceased to love him? When I see you, my dear Watson, with a week's accumulation of dust upon your hat, I shall fear that you have been unfortunate enough to lose the affection of the former Miss Mary Morstan, <laughs> or she would not allow you to go out in such oh, a state. He might be a bachelor. Uh, nay, remember? This card upon the bird's leg? He was bringing home the goose as a peace offering to his wife. Ah, yes, you have an answer for everything. But how on earth do you deduce that the gas is not laid in his house? One, Tallowstain. Even two might come by chance. But when I see no less than five, there can be little doubt that the individual must be in frequent contact with burning tallow, his hat in one hand and a guttering candle in the other. No one ever got tallow stains from a gas jet. Hmm.
Are you satisfied? Indeed. It is all absurdly simple. Quite so. Hmm. Any problem becomes childishly simple once it has been explained to you. <laughs> well, it is very ingenious, but since there has been no crime committed and no harm done save the loss of a goose, all this seems to be rather a waste of energy, yours and Peterson's. The goose, Mr. Holmes, the goose, sir. Peterson? <laughs> Your worship's was the last name in our mouths, as the bard says. <laughs> what of the goose? You look as if it returned to life and flapped off through the kitchen window. You just look here in the palm of my answers and see what my wife found in that bird's crop. A, a bit of broken blue glass. It flashes like an electric spark. By Jove, Peterson, this is treasure indeed. I suppose you know what you have got. Well, it cuts into glass as though it were putty. A diamond, sir? Precious stone? No, it is more than our precious stone. It is the precious stone. Not the Countess of Morcar's blue carbuncle. Precisely so. We ought to know its size and shape. We have read about it in the Times every day lately. It is absolutely unique. Its value can only be conjectured, but there is a £1,000 reward offered for its... A thousand pounds? Yes, and that is not a twentieth of the market price. Uh, let me sit before I fall. Great Lord of mercy! I have reason to know that there are sentimental considerations which would induce the Countess to part with half her fortune if she could but recover that gem. It was lost, if I remember from the newspaper accounts, at the Hotel Cosmopolitan. Indeed. On December 22nd, just five days ago, uh, John Horner, a plumber, was accused of having abstracted it from the lady's jewel case. The evidence against him was so strong that the case has been referred to the courts. I have some account of the matter here, I believe. Let's see. 19th, 20th... Ah, here we are, in Friday's Globe. <clears throat> Hotel Cosmopolitan Jewel Robbery. John, John Horner, 26, 26, plumber, was charged with having, upon the 22nd, abstracted from the jewel case of the Countess of Morcar the valuable gem known as the Blue Carbuncle. James Ryder, upper attendant at the hotel, gave testimony that he had shown Horner up to the dressing room of the Countess upon the day of the robbery to saw to the second bar of a grate which was loose. He remained with Horner some time, but was called away. On returning, he found that Horner had disappeared, that the bureau had been forced open, and that the small Morocco casket in which the Countess kept the jewel lay empty upon the dressing table. Ryder instantly gave a lie, help, help! and Horner was arrested this same evening, but the stone could not be found. Catherine Cusack, waiting maid to the Countess, deposed to having heard Ryder's cry and having rushed into the room where she found matters as he described. Inspector Bradstreet, B Division, gave evidence as to the arrest of Horner. I don't know what you're talking about. Who struggled frantically and protested his innocence. Evidence of a previous conviction for robbery was given against the prisoner, so the magistrate refused to deal summarily with the offense, but referred it to the assizes. Horner, who had shown signs of intense emotion during the proceedings, fainted and was carried out of court. The case against the man seems strong. Uh, so much for the police court. What? How? Exactly. The question for us now is the sequence of events leading from a rifled jewel case at one end to the crop of a goose at the other. You see, Watson, our little deductions suddenly assume a more important and less innocent aspect. Yes. Now, here is the stone. 
The stone came from the goose, and the goose came from Mr. Henry Baker, the gentleman with this bad hat and all the other characteristics with which I bored you. I did not say that I was bored. Well, at any rate, we must now set ourselves seriously to finding this gentleman and ascertaining what part he has played in this little mystery. Gentlemen, I brung you into this. Is there anything I can do? I believe so. We will try the simplest means first, an advertisement in the evening papers. If this fails, we have recourse to other methods. What will you say? Well, give me that pencil and slip of paper. Thank you. Now then. Um, person. Place. And thing. That should do it. But will he see it? Well, he is sure to keep an eye on the papers. To a poor man, the loss was a heavy one. He must bitterly regret the impulse which caused him to drop his fowl. Mm. Also, the mention of his name will cause everyone who knows him to direct his attention to it. Here, Peterson. Yeah. Run down to the advertising agency and have this put in the evening papers. Which, sir? Oh, the Globe, Star, Pell Mell, Evening News, any others that might occur to you. Very well, sir. And this stone? Ah, yes. I shall keep the stone. Thank you. Oh, and buy a goose on your way back. We must have one to give this gentleman in place of the one your family is now devouring. Thank you, Mr. Rose. Oh, thank you, Peterson. Thank you. Hmm. It is a bonny thing. Just, just see how it glints and sparkles. It was found on the bank of a river in China and is remarkable for having every characteristic of the carbuncle except that it is cobalt blue instead of ruby red. Of course, it is a nucleus of crime. A good stone is the devil's pet bait. In the larger, older jewels, every facet may stand for a bloody deed. This stone is not yet 20 years old. But there have been two murders, a vitriol throwing, a suicide, and several robberies for the sake of this 40-grain weight of crystallized charcoal. Who would think that so pretty a toy could lead to the gallows and the prison? I'll just lock it up in my strong box now and drop a line to the Countess to say that we have it. Do you think that this plumber, Horner, is innocent? I cannot tell. Well, then did you imagine that this other man, Henry Baker, had anything to do with the matter? It seems more likely that Henry Baker is an absolutely innocent man who had no idea that the bird he was carrying was of more value than if it were made of solid gold. But that, however, will be determined by a very simple test if we get an answer to our advertisement. And you can do nothing until then? Nothing. Yeah. In that case, I shall continue with my patience rounds, but I will come back this evening. I should like to see the solution of so tangled a business. Very glad to have you. Dinner's at seven. Mrs. Hudson brought back a woodcock, I believe. Lovely. The Globe, Tuesday, December 27th, 1887. Personal notices. Lost in Chelsea, an orange tabby answering to the name of Eugene. Please contact BF, Box 47, The Globe Offices. Found at the corner of Goode Street, a goose and a black felt hat. Mr. Henry Baker can have same by applying at 6.30 this evening at 221B Baker Street. I had been delayed with a patient's case, and it was a little after half past six when I found myself in Baker Street once more. As I approached the house, I saw a tall man in a scotch bonnet with a rusty black coat buttoned up to his chin waiting outside in the bright semicircle throne from the fanlight. He was large, with rounded shoulders, a massive head, and a broad, intelligent face sloping down to a pointed beard of grizzled brown. Oh, good evening. Oh, hello. 
May I ask if you are the party who placed uh, this advertisement? N no, the ad was placed by my associate, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, I am Dr. Watson. A slight tremor of his extended hand, which protruded from sleeves without sign of shirt or cuff, as well as a touch of red in his nose and cheeks, recalled Holmes's surmise as to his habits. He did indeed give the general impression of a man of letters who had suffered ill usage at the hands of fortune. Let us go in. Ah, ah come to dinner, Doctor. Oh, yes, Mrs. Hudson, but I believe this gentleman has business with Mr. Holmes first. Ah, well, go on in and warm yourselves. Thank oh, you. it's a bitter night. Yes, indeed. Uh, Mr. Henry Baker, I believe. Uh, sir. Uh, pray, take the chair by the fire, Mr. Baker. It's a cold night, and... I observe that your circulation is more adapted for summer than winter. Uh, Watson, you have come at just the right time. Splendid. Is that your hat, Mr. Baker? Uh, yes, sir, that is undoubtedly my hat. Uh, well, we have retained these things for some days because we expected to see an advertisement from you giving your address. I'm at a loss to know why you did not advertise. Uh, shillings have not been so plentiful with me as they once were. Mm. I, I had no doubt that the gang of the roughs who assaulted me had carried off both my hat and the bird. I did not care to spend more money in a hopeless attempt at recovering them. Very naturally. Oh, by the way, about the bird, uh, we were compelled to eat it. To eat it? <laughs> Please, sit down, Mr. Baker. Yes, oh. it would have been of no use to anyone had we not done so. But I presume that this other goose on the sideboard behind you, which is as of good a size and more fresh, will answer your purpose equally well? Oh, 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 certainly, certainly. Of course, we still have the feathers, legs, crop, and so on of your own bird, if you wish, so... <laughs> they might be useful to me as relics of my adventure, but beyond that I can hardly see what use the disjecta membra of my late acquaintance are going to be to me. Uh, uh, no, sir, I think that, with your permission, I will confine my attentions to the excellent bird which I perceive upon the sideboard. Of course. There. You see, Watson? He is quite satisfied with the goose. Well, there is your hat, Mr. Baker, and there your bird. Uh, by the way, would it bore you to tell me where you got the other from? I am somewhat of a foul fancier, and I have seldom seen a better-grown goose. Oh, certainly, sir. <laughs> My, he is a fat one. <laughs> well, Mr. Holmes, there are a few of us who frequent the Alpha Inn near the museum. Oh. We are to be found in the museum itself during the day, you understand. Hmm. This year, our good host, Windigit by name, instituted a goose club, by which, on consideration of some few pence every week, we were each to receive a bird at Christmas... Hmm. My pence were duly paid, and the rest is familiar to you. I see. For the hat as well, I am much indebted to you, for a scotch bonnet is fitted neither to my years nor my gravity. Sir. Mr. Baker. Good evening. Holmes, I don't think we've ever received such a, a grand bow farewell from the royals that have been here. Truly, <laughs> so much for Mr. Henry Baker. Uh. 
It is quite certain he knows nothing whatever about the matter. Are you hungry, Watson? Not particularly. Then I suggest that we leave our dinner for supper and follow up our latest clue while it is still hot. By all means. Good, good. It was a bitter night, so we drew on our ulsters and wrapped cravats about our throats. Outside, the stars shone coldly in a cloudless sky, and the breaths of passers-by blew out like smoke from pistol shots. Our footfalls rang out crisply as we swung through the doctor's quarter, Harley Street, and so through into Oxford Street. In a quarter of an hour, we were in Bloomsbury at the Alpha Inn, a small public house at the corner of one of the streets which runs down into Holborn. of beer, please, Mr. Windigate. Right you are, sir. Your beer should be excellent if it is as good as your geese. My geese? But how do you know my name? I don't believe I've seen you two gents before. Oh, we were speaking Thank not you. half an hour ago to Mr. Henry Baker, who was a member of your goose club. Ah, uh, ah, uh, yes, I see. Uh, uh, but you see, sir, them's not my geese. Oh, indeed. Who's then? Well, I got the two dozen from a salesman in Covent Garden. Oh, really? I know some of them. Which one was uh, it? Breckenridge is his name. Ah, well, I don't know him. Well, there's to your good health, landlord, and prosperity to your house. Oh, just let me finish this, Holmes. There you are, Watson. Now, on to Mr. Breckenridge. Oh, button up. This air is frosty. And remember, though we have so homey a thing as a Christmas goose at one end of this chain, we have at the other a man who will certainly get seven years penal servitude unless we can establish his innocence. But, Holmes, perhaps this plumber Horner did steal the gem. It is possible, but in either case, we have a line of investigation which was missed by the police and which a singular chance has placed in our hands. Let's follow it to the bitter end. Face the south. Quick march. Right. We passed across Holborn, down Endell Street, and through a zigzag of slums. God bless you, sir. Watson, hmm? you know how I feel about good music. Yes, Holmes. <laughs> that was charity indeed. <laughs> At Covent Garden Market, one of the largest stalls bore the name of Breckenridge. The proprietor, a horsey-looking man with a sharp face and trim side whiskers, was helping a boy to put up the shutters. Inside, the marble tables were bare. Good evening. It's a cold night. Yeah. Quiet, Duchess. Sold out of geese, I see. Let you have 500 tomorrow morning. Well, that's no good. Well, there are some in the stall over there by the guest flat. Ah, uh, but I was recommended to you. By who? The landlord of the Alpha. Oh, yes, yes. I, I sent him a couple of dozen. Uh, fine birds they were, too. Now, where did you get them from? Now then, mister, what are you driving at? Let's have it straight now. Well, it is straight enough. I should like to know who sold you the geese which you supplied to the Alpha. Well, then, I shan't tell you. So now. Well, it's no. a matter of no importance. Shh. I don't know why you should flail so over such a trifle. Flail? You, you flail too, maybe, if you were as pestered as I am. Well, when I pay good money for a good article, there should be an end of the business, but it's where are the geese, and who did you sell the geese well, to, I... and what will you take for the geese? 
One will think they were the only geese in the world to hear the fuss that's made over them. Well, I have no connection with any other people who've been making inquiries. If you won't tell, the bet with my friend here is off, that's all. But I'm always ready to back my opinion on a matter of fowls. And I have a fiver on it that that bird I ate was country-bred. Well, then you've lost your fiver for its town-bred. Oh, it's nothing of the kind. Oh, I say it is. I don't believe it. Do you think you know more about fowls than I, who have handled them ever since I was a nipper? I tell you, all those birds that went to the Alpha were town-bred. You'll never persuade me to believe that. Will you bet? Then? It's merely taking your money, for I know I'm right. But I'll have a sovereign on with you just to teach you not to be obstinate. Uh, uh, bring me the books, Bill. Right, sir. And that was part one of The Blue Carbuncle by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, a Sherlock Holmes mystery rendered in its delightful audio glory by the Quicksilver Radio Theater out of New York City. Quicksilver does not have a website, but you can find plenty of their stuff up on the public radio site, PRX, prx.org, or on the Radio Drama Revival archives. Just type in Quicksilver into the search. Uh, next week, for Christmas, we will be concluding this affair with the Blue Carbuncle. Um, after that, uh, for New Year's Eve, we're going to have uh, Chatterbox Audio Theater back, a marvelous holiday tale by James Joyce, retold in the South, Dead and Gone. I raved about it um, in review a few months back, and I'm so pleased to be able to feature it on the show at last. Um, of course, you can't wait that long. Do check out the blog and podcast at radiodramarevival.com. We've got news, reviews, discussion up there. You can also always find us on iTunes. Search for Radio Drama Revival. That now wraps it up for this week. Radio Drama Revival is produced by yours truly, Fred Greenhalge. Copyright of individual shows remains to their original producers, but do please share this show as far and widely as you'd like. Radio Drama Revival originates in on-air radio at WMPG-FM, Greater Portland, Maine's community radio station, and it is podcast at radiodramarevival.com as a labor of love. Till next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in, and have a great week. Mm-hmm.